Welcome to Healthcare Rounds. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the Arizona State University College of Health Solutions. Here we explore the vast and rapidly evolving healthcare ecosystem with leaders across the spectrum of healthcare delivery. Our goal is to promote ideas that advance the quadruple aim, including improving the patient experience, improving the health of populations, lowering the cost of care, and attaining joy in work. Please send your questions, comments, or ideas for Healthcare Rounds to podcast at darwinresearch.com. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get started. This is an encore presentation of Healthcare Rounds. Today, we are rebroadcasting a conversation with John Gorman. John is the founder and chairman of Nightingale Partners, the first Opportunity Zone fund to invest in social determinants of health interventions with health insurers, states, and provider organizations. He also founded and is the former executive chairman of Gorman Health Group. John's work focuses on Medicare, Medicaid, and Affordable Care Act strategy, governance, and turnaround of distressed health plans. This episode originally aired on October 30th, 2020. All right, so let's get started. Um, sure. I, I, I will have uh, read in your background, but um, thank you. First of all, thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Our listeners appreciate it, John. Um, you know, you've got a really interesting background in healthcare, and I thought just to kind of orient people, start us off by talking about uh, your history and uh, you know where you've been and, and where you are today. Sure. Um, well, I got started here in DC about 30 years ago, working for my uh, hometown congressman from Detroit, uh, John Conyers Jr. Uh, he, okay. he died earlier this year, um, but he, at the time he was the chairman of what was then the government oversight committee. So I came in as his press secretary um, having been a, a journalist up until then. Um, then a year later, I was his chief of staff, and that was when he walked into my office and said, um, it's time we got the Congressional Black Caucus, of which he was the dean, uh, involved in uh, the single-payer uh, movement. And uh, it's important for all of us to, uh, to get behind uh, single-payer. So, uh, he said, so this being so important, uh, you're going to do health care. And I said, well, Mr. Chairman, I don't, I don't know a thing about health care. And he said, Johnny, that's bullshit. He's like, you knew that my parents had met at Wayne State Med School in Detroit. And he's like, you've okay. probably forgotten more about health care in dinnertime conversation than most of us will ever know. So you're doing health care. And that's how it happened. Um, a year later, I was then helping to run President Clinton's campaign in Michigan in 92. And when he won, my plum was to go help run a new office of managed care in what was then HICFA, which is now, of course, CMS. So we were going to build the first office that would be directly responsible for all Medicare and Medicaid managed care programs. Um, and I was 25 and instantly had a $79 billion portfolio. And that only oh, happens, wow. that kind of shit only happens in DC, as you know, John. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, so, we're, we're um, the same age, roughly, I'm guessing. And uh, when I got my start at Abbott, so my first in-house job at Abbott 
1992, same year, was the market research analyst for the new Abbott Managed Care Division. Oh, wow. Wow. So so anyway, anyway, go, go on. So um, did that for a number of years and then uh, came out and opened Gorman Health Group, uh, which I ran for 22 years thereafter and which became, at the time, the biggest consulting and technology shop in government-sponsored healthcare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so focused on uh, Medicaid managed care and on Medicare Advantage. And um, uh, we had uh, nine spinoff companies uh, that all uh, came out of uh, our consulting practice, which we really kind of used as like an R&D laboratory for the development of technology or outsource services. And um, so I sold the company in uh, 2018, 22 years was long enough for me. Uh, and I was sitting on my ass retired uh, in April of 2019 when I got a notice on my phone that the IRS had just completely revised the regulations for the Opportunity Zone program, which uh, you know came out of Trump's big tax giveaway bill, but was actually Cory Booker's uh, real estate reinvestment program in disadvantaged communities. And the IRS, John, had just rewritten the regs to allow OZ capital to be used not just for real estate purchases in these disadvantaged communities, but now for leases, but more importantly for our purposes, for working capital or to meet the business requirements of a new co in one of these disadvantaged communities. And for us, I sat up, I slapped my forehead and I said, shit, that's it. Here's the source of funding for us to start making large scale investments in social determinant of health interventions with Medicare and Medicaid plans. And there, uh, that was what led to the birth of Nightingale Partners, which, uh, which is where I am today. So back up a little bit. Um, yep. For there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to know what opportunity zones are. I mean, it's a happy to where we know we see it, yep. but if you could explain, go in a little bit of depth sure. about that. Yeah, um, what opportunity zones are is basically a tax shelter that says that if you invest capital gains in one of the roughly 9,000 opportunity zones across the country. And those zones, John, are all severely economically disadvantaged and are almost all medically underserved under the federal designation. And that means they don't have enough healthcare providers or services to serve the population that lives there. Um, and, and the law says that if you invest your capital gains in one of these opportunity zones and you leave it in for at least 10 years, then not only is your initial investment completely tax-free, but all of the proceeds that you make on that investment are completely tax-free. So what that did was, uh, yeah. And so as you can imagine, that was like catnip for Republican billionaires. And uh, it opened up about $6.2 trillion in available capital. We are the only fund out there that I'm aware of that is using this program exclusively to make healthcare related investments. The vast majority of the roughly 100 billion that's been invested in OZs thus far, John, has been around real estate. Uh, and you know we're the only ones out there doing healthcare so far. So in practical terms, we're looking to buy a building 
for yep. for for a company, and I and yep. I noticed that on occasion, even in Scottsdale, like parts of Phoenix and Scottsdale, yes. so a, a, a location will pop up for opportunity zones. Exactly. Um, I haven't found I haven't been really been looking in that area, but so if we were to go into one of these areas and bought a building, then anything if we held it for ten years, then anything that that we did, any kind of investments, any improvements. Those are tax free. No capital gains. Proceeds that you make on your exit right. are completely tax free, and that's, that's that's unbelievable. So in our world, you know, with these investments that we make in social determinants, they're all designed to improve the quality of care and reduce dramatically reduce the cost of care for lower income members, and that's relatively easy to do. So we've yet to produce an investor prospectus that didn't get at least a 27 or 30% internal rate of return. But then what the opportunity zone shelter, the tax shelter does is add, John, about another 315 to 360 basis points uh, on top of that. So, um, you know, for, uh, you know, rich, uh, high net worth individuals, family offices, uh, corporations that have a lot of capital gains. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is a great alternative investment structure. Uh, if you don't want to have all your money in the market or in, uh, you know, other sectors of the economy. And, um, you know, we just found that this, ironically, this program that came out of uh, Trump's big tax giveaway bill suited our purposes perfectly. So, you know, what gets me up out of bed in the morning is the idea that we've hacked a Republican billionaire tax shelter <laughs> healthcare for black and brown people. And that's, uh, that gets me excited every morning. So what do, what do these investments look like? Are you, are you building like, you know, grocery stores in food deserts? Are you putting in physician offices and funding those offices? Like what, what do these investments look like? In part, uh, a lot more of our projects tend to be direct investments into services that will ameliorate social determinants of health. And, you know, obviously the reason this is such a ripe area for investment is that we know from the research, John, that uh, social determinants, you know, social determinants of health are really just four fancy words for poverty. And, um, you know, when you look at all the research, it shows you pretty definitively that, that poverty is accountable for 60 to 80% of healthcare costs in this country. And 80% really for seniors. Um, because, you know, look, when you've been living in poverty your entire life, most likely you've been dealing with systemic racism. You've been dealing with all of those uh, social determinants for your entire lifetime. I mean, you know, in healthcare, John, poverty charges interest. And so when you're a senior and you've been living under these conditions for your entire life, uh, those effects are much more pronounced. And that's why you get to the higher end of that spectrum around 80% of healthcare costs accountable for um, uh, social determinants. So our investments tend to be much more direct service related. Some of them are place-based. Um, but, you know, the hallmarks of our projects tend to be every one of them involves uh, the assignment of and deployment of community health workers. Uh, so these are basically like social workers without the license who grew up in these underserved communities and can be trained to serve as navigators for uh, really vulnerable, complex patients. Hmm. They've been consistently shown 
to reduce healthcare costs on average by about 2,200 bucks per member per year. Um, almost all of our investments involve uh, food security and helping people uh, eat better. And um, uh, in the case of uh, diabetics, uh, to do medically appropriate meal delivery for them to try to get their hemoglobin A1Cs under control. Uh, food security has been consistently shown to deliver, you know, results of 2,500 bucks a year uh, per patient on average. Uh, in some cases, even much higher. Um, Geisinger, you know, sort of did the, the landmark study in Pennsylvania uh, a few years back, John, where they found they were spending $300,000 per patient per year on their uncontrolled diabetics. Um, so they started wow. a medically appropriate meal delivery service for their uh, uncontrolled diabetic seniors. And within 14 months, they had knocked their average cost down to $48,000 per patient per year. So net of the cost of the meals prepared, packaged, and delivered, they saved $192,000 per patient per year. That's amazing. That was a 35X ROI, John. And for investors like us, it doesn't get any better than that, man. I mean, yeah. that's nowhere will you find an investment return that kind of numbers uh, anywhere else in the world. So food security is a very big uh, component of all of our interventions. And, you know, uh, others like transportation to medical appointments, or even, as you mentioned, to groceries, if you've got beneficiaries living in food deserts and say they've got congestive heart failure, but all they can eat within walking distance around them is a can of, you know, condensed soup from the local bodega. I mean, that's got enough sodium in it to land a CHF patient in the hospital that afternoon. So it makes a lot of sense to give her a ride to and from a grocery store and show her how to prepare healthy meals to keep her CHF and her diabetes in control. Um, so, so a lot of our investments. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I, I was just going to say some of the big health systems you mentioned, Geisinger, uh, yeah. have similar kinds of initiatives. But but in in your case, this is mostly Medicare and Medicaid, correct? Yep. So yes. the taxpayer is who's benefiting. Oh, yeah. Um, but the most immediate beneficiary of it is the Medicare Advantage plan, who, of course, is 100% at risk for the cost of their members. So Geisinger, in that example, did this benefit for their Medicare Advantage members uh, who were elderly and had out of control uh, A1Cs. And those kind of results are exactly the kind of stuff that investors like us love to jump into. So are you getting investments from the Cygnas, the Humanas of the world uh, that have those patient populations? Yes. I mean, most of our projects thus far really have been with Medicaid plans, which are much closer to, um, you know, understanding the needs of these populations than uh, we see even among the Medicare Advantage plans, though the MA plans are coming around uh, on this. There's a very different dynamic in place for MA plans, John, because um, you know, for every dollar that they might want to invest in social determinants, it's going to hit their the competitiveness of their monthly premium. Um, you know, and Medicare Advantage survives on, in a zero premium environment right now, and so the MA plans have been a lot more 
uh, hesitant to get into these types of investments in a large scale, which is really one of the reasons why we exist. We exist to de-risk the wide scale uh, adoption and offering of social determinant interventions among plans by bringing other people's money to the dance so it doesn't affect their competitive position and frankly takes all the, the risk and the guesswork out of it for their actuaries who I think we all know really run these companies. Um, now, you know, like our most recent investment, which we just announced this morning before I jumped on with you guys, is with, uh, we led a round of uh, investment for a company called Edenbridge Health. And Edenbridge is uh, a next generation PACE uh, provider. So the program of all inclusive care for the elderly. Right. So what Edenbridge does is uh, adult daycare centers on steroids as a nursing home diversion uh, option. And Edenbridge really excels, especially in the age of COVID where you know we're very nervous about congregate care settings. They're very good at projecting these services into home and community-based settings to enable uh, really vulnerable, frail seniors to remain in their homes uh, safely with all of the services that they would get in an assisted living facility or a nursing home and uh, keeps them out of, uh, you know, COVID high risk environments like a skilled nursing facility. So we just announced that this morning. We were thrilled about that one. That's a place-based investment, as you mentioned. So, you know, we are buying up real estate in opportunity zones to build these adult daycare centers with them. Um, and just last week, John, we were down in Puerto Rico where the need is the greatest. In all of the United States, um, Puerto Rico, which is of course a US territory, um, is desperate for these types of investments. And not a lot of mainlanders are aware that the average income in Puerto Rico is 40% of the average income in Mississippi. And so if we tend to think wow. of Mississippi as the most dirt poor state in the union, now think Puerto Rico's got 40% of that. Aside from being hurricane and earthquake ravaged over this last five years, um, this is the most desperate community of Americans uh, that we have. So um, it's telling that all of Puerto Rico basically has been designated one giant opportunity zone. And so what we're doing down there is a joint venture with Boys and Girls Clubs of Puerto Rico and with Triple S, which is the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan of the Caribbean. And we're going into 13 of Puerto Rico's most notorious public housing projects. And uh, we're gonna open up a, a school, which Boys and Girls Clubs will run. We're gonna open up a workforce development center, which we're jointly going to run. Boys and Girls Clubs will handle all the job training for tourism and pharmaceutical jobs in Puerto Rico. We're going to handle all the healthcare related job training for community health workers or, or promotores as we call them in Puerto Rico uh, or for contact tracers. And uh, we'll jointly run that training center so that we can lift more uh, the members in, in these public housing projects out of poverty with real jobs. And then we're gonna run an on-site uh, healthcare services and social services clinic right embedded within 
these public housing projects. And Triple S is going to help us run these clinics. And uh, we will be building for Triple S a platform to uh, address social determinants for all of their members across Puerto Rico from these, uh, these centers in these 13 public housing projects. So we're really excited about that one. That, you know, at its heyday, when we have all 13 of these centers funded, it's gonna be over, God, it could be close to $200 million. So wow. we're really excited about that one. And that's another example of place-based investment that we're doing that that serves as a hub for healthcare and social services. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. It, I, I'm wondering where your sources of funding are coming from and what's in it for them. In other words, if I had an extra hundred grand lying around yep. and I wanted to put some money into this fund, um, is it just okay? I'm I'm basically doing a charitable donation, or how does this circle okay. back to an opportunity zone? Like I said, all of our investments have to flow through opportunity zones. Um, so all of our investors, John, tend to be really high net worth individuals, uh, family offices, you know, that run uh, large family foundations and um, uh, corporations that are throwing off uh, a lot of capital gains. And um, like I said earlier, I mean, we've yet to produce an investor prospectus for these interventions that came in at less than 27 or 30% internal rate of return. So they're making great money on these investments that, you know, typically the stock market can't even produce this kind of return. And then what the Opportunity Zone tax shelter does is that, as I mentioned, adds another 315 to 350, 65 basis points on top of that. So we're typically producing um, investments with a 30 to 30, 3% rate of return, which as most uh, large investors like our syndicate represents, uh, those are great returns. And it gives them a, you know, a wonderful uh, story to tell in their annual report, uh, some feel good stuff that goes along with it. But you know, most of these guys are in it for the money. And that's why we really kind of focus on real adverse selection. We focus on the highest risk patients that are most impactable, that we know we can do the greatest good for. Um, and that's you know, why we really are very careful about targeting our investments into communities that need this type of investment desperately, because frankly, that's where we're gonna get the greatest healthcare savings, which we share with our uh, healthcare partners. That's how we repay those investors. Okay. So I wanna ask a couple of big picture questions before we sign off. Sure. Uh, you're a DC guy. Yep. Insider. Uh, what's the fate of the ACA right now? Oh, man. I tell you, man, I have been sitting around, literally have chewed off all of my fingernails since Amy Coney Barrett got uh, nominated. Um, I think we know that the appointments that Trump has made to the Supreme Court probably came with a quid pro quo like he did in Ukraine and pretty, basically every place else that said, if I put you on the court, you are going to destroy Obamacare for me. Um, I'm very, very concerned about uh, the outlook now that she has been confirmed to the Supreme Court in this just, just horrible exercise of power by the Republicans in the Senate. Um, and I think um, uh, the money is pretty good, at least even money, 
that they're going to strike down the whole ACA, even though the legal argument brought by the Republicans' uh, attorneys general uh, is is just terrible uh, lawyering and jurisprudence on its face. I mean, the 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 case that they're making is basically that because we've uh, repealed the individual mandate, that uh, therefore it's not what we call in legal circles severable, and therefore it means that the Supreme Court should invalidate the entire law. Um, that is not the case at all, and it's going to be a terrible ruling if that's what they decide. But I think it's at least even money that they're going to throw the whole law out, which is going to instantly produce chaos among at least 45 million Americans, either for their coverage directly through the exchanges, through the Medicaid expansion, and or through the pre-existing condition uh, protections that uh, Trump talks a lot about, but hasn't done more than an executive order around, which has no binding effect in law or regulation. So, uh, and to do that right in the middle of a pandemic, um, it's just terrifying, John. And I, uh, I just cannot believe that we've gotten to this point, but I think it's, like I said, at least even money that they're gonna throw the law out. My feeling is, and I'm not a lawyer, but uh, that there is a, a principle of, of, of do no harm in, in law. And I forget what it's called, but it's, it's you know, effectively, the Supreme Court is looking at this and saying, if we toast the, the U.S. economy by doing this, by throwing the healthcare markets uh, into uh, in the chaos, and you know, it's not just the pre-existing conditions, it's the things like the Medicare expansion, uh, things like you know, accountable care organizations, yep. uh, the structure of bundled payments and the way that yep. CMS, the innovation the center. The entire like, innovation oh, office, the right. 10 billion that funded the CMMI all came out of the ACA. So that gets thrown out with the bathwater as well. You're exactly right. So my sense is, and maybe this is just wishful thinking, that regardless of whatever quid pro quo, uh, the feeling is, at least odds are, that uh, he's not going to be in office for, for much longer. We don't know, but odds, odds are that, that he won't. And even if he, even if he would be, that judges will look at this and say, the legal argument is terrible, as you pointed out. It's lazy, um, vindictive, and doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. And if we do this, the implications, uh, because the ACA has become really part of the fabric of American healthcare in ways that a lot of people don't think about. Right. Um, It's not just, you know, kids can stay on their parents, you know, up to 26 or. Yeah, that um, goes up the window too. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are those things that, that the general public knows like pre-existing conditions, but the, the ACA is, is like I said, it's, it's a part of the fabric of how healthcare is delivered in the U S today. And if that goes out in, you know, a couple of weeks or whenever it is that they're looking at it, um, so I'm hopeful that leveler heads and that they'll look at this and they'll say from a legal standpoint, regardless of what their um, opinions uh, are as conservatives yep. or liberals, and uh, maybe that Roberts sits everybody down and says, look, this is the implications. If we, we, need, to have a, we need to have a 9-0 decision here and put this to bed. Huh. 
Well, I don't see that happening. <laughs> I think the only bulwark here is that Chief Justice Roberts just does not want invalidating the ACA as part of his legacy on the court. Um, and that, you know, agreeing with the argument the Republican attorneys general has made is tantamount to the ultimate politicization of the Supreme Court, because that's all this argument is, is politics. There's no legal basis in the claim that they have made to the court. And, um, but I tell you, man, I'm, I'm just a lot more cynical, especially when you've seen a couple of the recent opinions from Kavanaugh and uh, Gorsuch. I mean, they're, they're clearly saying we're towing the boss's line here on these rulings. Like what Kavanaugh just said on the Wisconsin voter suppression case was disgusting. And that's what made, you know, the bottom drop out of my stomach in thinking about what could happen on November 10th when they hear the ACA case. So I think we're going to have to stay tuned and um, hope for the better angels on uh, the court to prevail. But uh, there is no bottom with this administration or with anybody that they put on the court, as I've seen thus far. And um, I'm pretty cynical about what the outcome could be, John. Well, not being part of DC uh, and just being, you know, looking at this from the outside, I've, I've got, I have hope that regardless of ideology, that obviously the, the Supreme Court has is, is become more political or more ideological, yeah. um, but that Roberts is like, as you say, for, for his legacy, but also, you know, what he needs to do to dispel that notion of politics. And, and it'd be interesting to know, like, how, the, how these justices sit around and how they discuss cases and, and you know, what, what happens behind the scenes rather than what we can read from transcripts from oral arguments or things like that, you know. Yeah. Like so, I said, I'm not optimistic, brother, but yeah. maybe we can, uh, we can check back in in a month or so and see where we're at and survey the wreckage. Yeah. So how's the drumming coming? Oh, how's the great. band? Uh, we have, a we have a jam session tonight and then, um, next week we start back on, uh, every Friday night over at our studio, we'll be doing, uh, you know, small open mic nights. And, uh, that's about all that's keeping my head on during this pandemic, man. Are you still doing, uh, like block parties and things like that? No, um, we, we had to stop the block parties because I've got too many elderly neighbors that were complaining about all the noise. <laughs> so we, we moved down to this uh, wonderful studio downtown in D.C. And uh, we're taking out the whole top floor, which, you know, could actually accommodate about 200 people. Uh, but we're only going to bring in about 20 folks at a time just to keep it safe. And, uh, you know, we'll just get back to our weekly jams and uh you know, help our mental health that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we just recently moved and that forced me to take a look at my, my inventory of, uh, I think I got like eight guitars now at this point. Oh man. And I hooked, but I hooked up my, my keyboard, my, uh, uh, digital piano nice. and all my, all my stuff. And I sat down, this was just last weekend, uh, or the weekend before last, excuse me. And I must have played for like an hour. And it was, it's been so long since I, I've yeah. taken the time to do it. I've just been so yeah. busy. Yeah. Um, you got to make time for it. Got to make so, time. Music is, is so time. important. Yeah. I mean, when we do these jams, I mean, we're starting at 630 tonight. We'll probably play till 
one in the morning until at least my hands are bleeding and uh, you know, it's time, time to call it a night. But yeah, this is our therapy, brother. I don't know how you do it. I tried, I tried to learn once as an adult, it's, it's, it felt to me like I was flying a helicopter. Like, you know, like I couldn't, I couldn't get my feet going at the same time that this hand was oh. doing something that this hand was doing something yeah. with piano. You learn to kind of like, play together i don't know how to describe it but yeah. you know the left hand is kind of doing what it wants to do and the yeah. right hand's doing that and it's it's more symbiotic but drumming yeah. man how well, do you do it drums, you know then you got your two feet in there not just the pedals on a piano and right you know you got your two feet in there so it, it really does require some ambidextrousness as you as you know uh yeah. but you know i I hadn't picked up the sticks in 30 years when uh, we we put the band together right after Trump got elected because I think we all knew we were going to need the therapy and it just kind of came right back to me and you know it's just I, I definitely do find some impairments now that I'm older and my brain isn't wired I used to be able to drum and sing at the same time I can't I can't sing anymore wow. when I'm playing it's just too much stuff going on in the neurons <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I can still beat the hell out of the cans and enjoy the hell out of doing it. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Well, listen, John, it's Thank been you. great. Let's keep in touch. I mean that I'm, I, I love the work that you're doing. It's uh, really interesting stuff. Um, and uh, let's check back in after the dust settles, maybe in a few months and see how things are, how things have transpired post-election Yeah, and all, all of that. Let's hope the better angels prevail on November 3rd and we get this country back on the track. Yeah. Agreed. All right, brother. Well, thanks again for having me. It's always a pleasure, John. Talk to Absolutely. You Thank you. Yeah. See ya. On behalf of all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. Healthcare Rounds is produced and engineered by me, Sam Yates, with theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group leverages the power of information to enhance human health by providing advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. Check us out at darwinresearch.com. See you next round!